Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. This week, A Slice of Cheese sings the praises of blue cheeses. We talk to acclaimed Stilton maker Billy Kevin of Colston Bassett Stilton and three new blue cheese makers, Mike Thompson of Mike's Fancy Cheese, Martin Tuckulls of Pevensey Cheese and Rich Hodgson of The Art of White Cheese. We also talk to Alison Elliott of the Ham and Cheese Company who tells us of Gorgon's owner's venerable history and author Ned Palmer explores the complexity of Stilton's history. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese we're looking at blue cheeses and really, we can't talk about blue cheeses without talking about Stilton, which is Britain's most famous blue cheese. And I'm really happy to have with me today Billy Kevin of Colston Bassett Dairy. And I must say that, you know, right up front, Colston Bassett Dairy Stilton, as made for Neil's Yard Dairy, is absolutely one of my sort of desert island cheeses. Good morning, Billy. Good morning. Yeah, so really thrilled to have you on this show for quite personal reasons, as well as really as really good journalistic ones. Um, so, Billy, Colston Bassett, can you tell us a little bit about the history? It's got a very sort of, it's a very venerable dairy, isn't it? There isn't a short history for Colston Bassett, I'm afraid. <laughs> Um, well, when was it founded then? Okay, so, I mean, going back to the year dot, um, 1913 was when this site started producing cheese. The The actual mechanism of creating Colson Bassett Dairy started in 1912 um, when capital was raised to build um, a custom-made Stilton plant. So it was only ever designed to make Stilton cheese. And you've got a long, it's got this incredible sort of, there have only been, how many cheesemakers have there been in the whole history of Colston Bassett? Uh, that's a contentious one. Um, ah. <laughs> okay, so so contentious only locally, not not nationally, let's say. Yeah. So so the first person to make Stilton here wasn't actually the manager. It was a lady called Eliza Wagstaff. Mm-hmm. Um, however, she didn't stay very long, but she went to have a family. But the first cheesemaking manager was a guy called Thomas Coy. Um, right. And Tom, Tom actually joined the business straight after World War One um, because he, he was he was a seven officer, well, seven army guy. He was in, in, in the, the, the Great War and then he came to Colson Bassett mm-hmm. right after. He stayed there until his retirement sometime in the, I want to say 60s, but it, it's probably late 50s, early 60s, whereas he was 
he was replaced by a guy called Ernest Wagstaff, or Ernie Wagstaff, as we all knew him. And I actually had the pleasure of knowing Ernie for a few years before he died. So um, his replacement was a guy called Richard Rowlett. Again, I had the pleasure of working with Richard for a few years before he retired. He retired quite young. He retired at 50. But um, I've been sort of in charge of cheese making operations and the actual business itself since Richard retired. But in reality, I was in charge of the cheese making almost from when I was employed here, which was in September 1999. Wow. Okay. That's a long, a long time to make in Stilton. I mean, it's just interesting, isn't it? This, the idea of knowledge, cheese knowledge, you know, and how do you get to know something which is complex to make and getting to understand it, you know, that's really yeah. interesting. I, I, I was, I was fortunate. My dad was a professional cheesemaker and, and you know, although he didn't get the acclaim perhaps he should have done, he, he made cheese from when he was about 14. Wow. Uh, um, and he retired from cheese, I think he was just about 60. So, and he wasn't just a, a run-of-the-mill cheesemaker. He actually, he worked for Unigates and Ivel and he was employed to teach people to make cheese. So mm. um, when I came into that, it was a logical step for him to teach me how to make cheese. So I spent... 15 years with my my father learning how to make cheese before I even came to Colston Bassett. Right, that's so interesting. And actually, what brought you to Colston Bassett then? Was it was it were you, you know were you interested in blue cheese or was it just a chance? Uh, no, I was already make, I was already making Stilton. I've made Stilton since I was 15 part time. Right. Um, and I'm 52 this year, so I've been been doing it quite a while now. <laughs> um, but 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 the business my father was employed to teach hard cheese making to made Stilton. Oh. So that's why we moved from Scotland to England. We were, he was recruited from a Unigate site he was on in Scotland to a Unigate site in England who made Stilton. That was very much just because there was there was excess capacity within the business when they weren't making full full amounts of cheese for, for, for Stilton and they wanted to make other cheeses. So he was employed to teach them how to make Red Leicester, Double Gloucester, Cheddar, Cheshire, them sort of cheeses, the British territorials. Mm -hmm. But then when I came to Colson Bassett, um, it was a logical step for me because they were looking for a more senior manager. So it, it, although it was a, a step up in, in title, it was a step down in what I was doing, as in Colson Bassett were only making two types of cheese, not, not I, was making ah. about, I was making about 15 or 16 at the time. Wow, that's interesting. Gosh, and what, what's the scale? Give us a sense of the scale of production at Colston Bassett. How many people work there and how many? Um, okay, so it, it, the number sounds a lot. We have 30 employees, mm -hmm. but six of them, I think it's six, six or seven of them are part-time. So we only have just over 20 making cheese full-time, if you like. Yeah. Uh, um, the scale is about, I think we have... 400 and something tons at, at peak production. It, it, it's been varied recently because of COVID, so it's been ineffective. Yes. Um, I, ideally, when we have full production, somewhere around about an average of 150 cheese a day, average. Right. And can give us, a, again, because there are a number of Stilton dairies, aren't they? Are there, there's some much larger ones, aren't there? Is that right, Billy? Yeah. So the Stilton industry is, is, is quite a fickle business, actually. So the Stilton Cheesemakers um, Association is made up of five blue cheesemakers now and one white Stilton cheesemakers. In size, um, Long Closs and Dairy is the biggest by far. They're, they're, I think they're about 7,000 tons of cheese a year. Right. Um, 
then you've got Tux and Tebbit who make around 1,500 tonnes a year. Then you've got Cropwell Bishop Creamery who makes about 1,200 tonnes a year. Then there's ourselves who make, as I said, just over 400 tonnes a year. Mm-hmm. Until recently, there was another smaller one, which was Webster's um, Creamery. They've, they've, they've closed the doors and stopped making. I think the two ladies decided that when COVID happened, it was a good time to retire. And then that just left Hearted and Creamery. Hartington Creamery is an interesting one because um, although it professes, you know, long a long longevity of history, actually it's quite a new business. Hartington Creamery was based in the village of Hartington originally. That was GM Nuttall. That was closed by Dairy Crest, mm-hmm. and two ex Dairy Crest employees started a small business, which the they they kind of adopted the provenance, if you like, um, right. where they called it Hart- Hartington Creamery. Ah, they 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 make Dovedale Blue, they make white cheese blends, and they make some Stilton, but only in a small amount. So off, the, so then, big picture, you are the sort of smallest Stilton producer in that sense, aren't you? Of what you're we're, we're, what yeah, you're I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, you could argue Hartington was, but they don't make, yeah, se- they don't make seven days a week regular Stilton like we do. So as as regular makers, we're the smallest maker. Right, that's interesting. And the reason I was asking that, Billy, is I was really interested in what that brings to the cheese making. You know, in this, if you're making on a smaller scale, I was wondering if there were advantages in it, or or is there just sort of labour that you do on this smaller scale that you couldn't <sighs> then scale up in, in yeah. your production yeah there's there's advantages and disadvantages to being so small so the advantages are we can take more care over each cheese right because we're making such a small amount um it's a very labor-intensive process um mm. we can we can focus on every individual cheese as we sort of make it into curd and 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 form a cheese we can focus on that cheese right through the whole system so there are advantages the disadvantages are exactly the same thing um because we focus more on every individual cheese it costs us more because <laughs> it, it it takes more labor per cheese to make we, we don't have the benefits of economy of scale if you like right so so yeah we from that point of view we had advantages um, there are some things in the process we do which you just couldn't do if you're doing it on large scale. So we, we hand ladle every cheese that we make. This is really key, isn't it? To So this is the, the hand ladling as opposed to what sort of mechanically moving the curd then, is that right? Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's more than one way of moving the curd from vat to trolley. Some people don't move it, which is a bad idea because you've got residual flavours, um, whey flavours in the cheese. When you do move it, you can do it manually like we do by hand and using a hand ladle. You can you can do it in an enclosed vat which is pressurized. You can do it in an enclosed vat which is elevated and done through gravity. Uh-huh. Um, we're the only ones which actually hand ladle all our cheese. That advantage that that sort of hand ladling implies like a delicacy of is that a gentler thing to do to the curd then? Basically? Yeah. So so if you imagine um, pressurizing, it moves it fast through a pipe, so you damage some of the fatty proteins of the curd. Doing it through gravity, you can you can do it gentle-ish, but not not fully gravity. You have to have it at a higher level than the, than the next one. So you're going to get movement of curd. Mm-hmm. 
Um, doing it by hand, basically you retain more of that fatty protein structure in the curds and lose less of that fatty protein to weigh. But, so it sounds very, so obviously it is very labour intensive. And is there a time pressure on that curdling process has to be done at a certain stage when the, to do with temperature, right? I don't know, or, or acidification or something. Yeah, I mean, obviously I can't give away all our secrets, no, Jenny. No, don't. But, oh, sorry. But, uh, <laughs> but we, we, there are certain things and certain time constraints within the process. Um, Stilton is... Is one of them funny cheeses. I mean, having made other cheeses, um, I understand um, a lot about cycle times, and cycle times are basically a cheese making terminology for rennet to salting. So when you add your rennet to when you add your salt, that time period is a cycle time. Oh, okay. The cycle time of some of the, the territorial cheeses, like Cheshire, for instance, can be two hours, 50 to three hours from rennet to salt. Cheddar might be four hours 30 to five hours 20. Double Gloucester might be four hours to four hours 30. Red Leicester a little less, but um, you get the idea. Cycle time on Stilton, if you're making it properly, will be anywhere from 19 hours to 24 hours. Goodness. So, so from when you add the rennet to the salt, and there's different things to do within them within that right. cycle time. Yeah. And and the result of that is is a very slow acidification, not to be confused with a a low acidification. It's a very slow acidification. Right. Good point. Yeah. So so the acidity that you gain in that. 19 to 24 hours is much much higher than any of the other cheeses so the closest being probably would be a cheshire in three hours they might reach 0.7.8 percent titratable acidity whereas a stilton will be above 1.3 percent so it's considerably higher but it's just done over a slow a slower period mm. and the things we have to do in 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 the middle of that is obviously you have a because of that you'll have a slower set so it takes longer to set which means you're using less rennets, less starters, because uh -huh. it's a longer period. So, right. so every, everything on it is done with, with which is effectively a slow cheese vat, and you have to. And a slow cheese is at higher risk than any other cheeses because of slow acid development. So, Stilton's a difficult cheese to make and get right. Right. Okay, that's so interesting to hear, Billy. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, when I introduced you, I, I was very specific. And I said, I love the Colston Bassett Stilton made for Nils Yard Dairy, which sounds like I'm being very precious. But there was a reason for that. Yeah. Uh, so basically, Nils Yard cheese is an animal rennet cheese, which is, you know, a more traditional rennet, which is used. Um, yeah. we, use, we use other rennets, which are vegetarian or microbial rennets but not for Neil's Yard. Um, the the Neil's Yard cheese is matured over a much longer period. We add somewhere between two and four weeks to their maturation period. And it's also, by design, uh, made to have less blue in it. Um, right, so, yes. Because that's really interesting, because I use that cheese, and I know I'm not the only person to, to convert people who say they don't like blue cheese. And I say, well, try a bit of this lovely Stilton. And, um, because, you know, there's a lot of paste, isn't there? And the veining is... Is there, but it's not overwhelming in the way that it can. Yeah, it, it's yeah. best described as a marriage of flavors. Yeah. So, so we are. So the, the the paste, as you call it, which is which I would call the curd. The curd is is quite high acid still because it's not blue. Right. The less acidification in in blue cheese is actually the blue mold developing. So the more it develops, the less the less pH you or the higher pH you have, if you like. If you're to taste a very high acid cheese like a Lancashire or, or a Cheshire and you eat it, swallow it, you're left with a lot of saliva in your mouth because of the acidification. Mm. With our blue cheese, we try and get that same, same mouth feel and effect, 
but still have blue blue in there if you like if the cheese is over blue and the ph is very high effectively you won't get that same mouthfeel and taste i was really struck by the texture because i i ate some this morning to remind myself and and I thought, gosh, it literally melts in my mouth. It was quite. It was almost like eating a bit of chocolate. If I take and just put it in my mouth and let it melt, I, was, I, was, I thought, gosh, what an incredible texture for a cheese. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so if you understand the dynamics of of blue Stilton, um, if you eat the cheese too young, it'll be high in acid. It'll be quite bitter because the blue's not developed and the acid's still there. As you develop that, if you if you can make it mature longer without losing too much moisture, you will get a better mouthfeel. You'll get a marriage of flavors, and the rennet and fatty proteins will be able to do their job and break down, which which is one of the reasons you'll get a nice smooth buttery texture. Ah. So it, it's a, it's a, it, it was one of the old mis- misconceptions that people had about Blue Stilton, that the older it was, the stronger it was. That's not necessarily the case, and purely because the acidity changes. So if you imagine a pH curve where you start milk at 4.9 on the pH scale, you will make the Stilton through the process go down as low as... 4.2 and then when you eat the cheese believe it or not the ph is actually probably about 6.8 so it's huh. very very neutral yeah. so everything in there's done its job you get a marriage of flavors and you get that complexity you're meant to have it's one of the ways you can get a complex cheese without that raw milk um benefit if you like that's interesting yeah because obviously it's it still to legally is pasteurized milk isn't it so yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, rightly or wrongly, uh, I mean, the product itself, we'll, we'll go into the, the raw milk debate because I, I am an advocate of raw milk cheese, but not in all cheese, um, Jenny. Right. Going back to what I said about the cycle times and Stilton basically being a, a slow cheese, because you develop acidity over a long, slow period, and because it's matured open in an open environment without any packaging, and because you change the pH of the cheese over its life, it makes it a higher risk cheese than many others. So if you were to use raw milk, and which some people do mm-hmm. uh, in that blue cheese type, um, Joe yep. Schneider at Stitchilton for one, um, it, it makes it actually more difficult to get a cleaner cheese at the end or a safer cheese. It's not it's not impossible, but it's more difficult. Right. Um, you know, and, and you you then have to be very careful about whether you're mixing herds, whether you've got contaminated cows in a herd. Joe's got a single herd, it makes it easier. But when you're making and you're upscaling, especially for people like Long Clausen who might have 40 or 50 farms a day going mm-hmm. into, their, into their silos, it's very difficult to manage the milk in a way that you're absolutely sure it's safe. Right. Yes, I can understand. Yes. And that's actually what pasteurising does is it when they milk in a larger scale production and milk from different sources, it, it, it is a very obvious way, isn't it, of, of making it. Safe. Well, it, it reduces the risk. It never makes yeah. thing, things never, are never 100% yes. safe. It just reduces the risk. So, yeah. I mean, we have experience here at, at the business where, you know, you pasteurise you pasteurize the milk and you believe you've got a clean product to start. It's not always the case because pasteurisation is only a statistical kill, if you like. So, right. so you know, it, how clean the milk is is important initially, just as it is in raw milk. Yeah. before you pasteurize because if you've got high colony counts 
in raw milk and then pasteurize it, you're not guaranteed to kill everything unless you over pasteurize, and then the, uh-huh. the milk's not the milk's not good for making cheese anyway. Right. Um, it's a common misconception that if you pasteurize, you take everything out of the milk. You don't. What you do is you you kill all the pathogens and some flora, but not all flora. Gosh, interesting. And so you know, Stilton is such a famous cheese. Is there a thinking of Christmas? Do you have then you have to up Presumably, you have to up production and plan. Is that oh. your big, big time? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. Yes. I mean, I mean, actually, you've you've caught me today and yesterday just trying to resolve age profile problems I have for for specific customers because this is the time of year where it's crunch time. The amount right. of cheese I have now and make now between now and the end, the end of sort of September, middle of October is what we have for Christmas, and if you get it wrong, people people don't have enough cheese. But mm. you're absolutely right. I mean, Colson Bassett Dairy don't freeze cheese. Um, we we kind of make to, we make to order almost. We what we do is right. we have specific specific customers who have the same amount of cheese each year from us by design because we can't make any more cheese. Yeah. Um, if some of them customers you know stop trading and then there's excess around, we offer it out and people people can come on board. But but as a rule, we have the same customer base. Um, who have similar amounts of cheese, you know, the pandemic, Brexit and Donald Trump aside. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because that's what we've had to deal with the last Quite. 18, 18 months. We have, yeah, the um, from Trump, yeah. We, we tend to start making more cheese usually from the end of March up until the end of October. And then we reduce a little. So we're not an absolute full capacity the whole year because, you know, running a business isn't just about making cheese. You have to, you have to have, you know, people have to have holidays. You have to have the resources in to do things. You need to have time to deep clean the place. You need, you need remedial work that you have to do legally um, to make sure the place is safe. So if you were to make full production 365 days of the year, that just wouldn't be possible. So as I said, we make an average of about 150 cheese a day, but, but in real terms, from the 1st of April till the end of October, we're making about 175 cheese, and then we, we come down right. from from then until the end of March again to give us time to actually make the business function properly. Yeah, draw breath. <laughs> yes, God. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. Exactly yes. that. Well, I must say, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? I'm always, you know, Christmas in our house always has your Stilton in it, Billy. So, you know, and I know right. I'm just one of hundreds, obviously, of people who, who it, love It's it. funny you should so, say that, but mm. my, house, my house does too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good to know. I'm pleased. Yeah. So, listen, Billy, thank you so much, because I know how busy you are. It's really wonderful to get that insight into Colston Bassett. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great. Thank you. Take care, Billy. Okay, bye. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. Very happy to have with me today Mike Thompson of Mike's Fancy Cheese. Good morning, Mike. Hi, how are you doing, Jenny? I'm very good, thank you. And Mike... You know, I really wanted you to have on this episode, we're looking at blue cheese, we're exploring blue cheese, and you make your Northern Ireland's first raw milk blue cheese maker, as I understand it. Yeah, I think we're the, we're the only people making raw milk uh, cheese in Northern Ireland. Obviously, many moons ago, I'm sure that was the norm. But yeah, in, in modern terms, we're the only people making a, a raw milk cheese in Northern Ireland at the minute, yeah. Amazing. And so tell me, so when did you start, and Young Buck is the name of your cheese. When did you start making Young Buck? 
Yeah, um, about eight years ago now. Um, this sounds ter- terrifying. I'm still trying to figure <laughs> out what the hell we're doing. Um, so yeah, we've been making it um, in a place called Newtonards, which is about half an hour outside Belfast. Uh, and we made our, our first batch of cheese. Uh, it's like November 2013, which we sold at the the first of the first of April 2014. So yeah, eight years wow. now. Wow, gosh, it's well done. And why? So you so you decided you wanted to make cheese is that right you, you went on a cheese making course did you and yeah so i was at the school of artisan food so i was working I was sort of working in cheese in a, a wee deli in belfast selling cheese um and through that uh, you know we sort of would buy a lot of irish cheese from the guys down in cork direct and that's when i sort of realized that okay well it's not just a big factory making these kind of cheeses that's you know there's a person behind the cheese so maybe mm. it's something i could do and i ended up going and doing the course at the school of artisan food over in england to sort of see how a city boy could end up becoming a, a farmhouse cheesemaker. Fascinating. I mean, it's it's this whole issue of how knowledge is shared and passed is is really interesting. And it's brilliant that that course, you know, it's a wonderful thing that they're doing there. And what drew you towards blue cheese? Because lots of people start with, you know, making small little white bloomy rind cheese. That's quite a, often a sort of first cheese. You, you were drawn to blue. It's quite challenging, blue cheese making. It was something yeah, you wanted well, to do. <laughs> exactly. Well, I was, I was fortunate to... We obviously we did the course and uh, as part of the course we got ended up doing a lot of uh, different work placements um so i was fortunate to have worked alongside a lot of the sort of you know top uk cheese makers uh in the course of that year and then ended up working um at a farm called spark and Ho, uh, with david and joe clark it was before they were making their um stilton style cheese but again it was just so i sort of had made lots of cheese for people in the mm. space of two years um and then whenever we were coming back to get started over here, we were obviously looking for a cheese that was ready within three months because any longer than that, we wouldn't have any money to, <laughs> to keep yeah. buying milk to store. So sure. that was kind of the, the thing, that the, the longest age thing we could do is three months. Yep. Um, and then because also whenever we moved back here, we didn't really know if there was an immediate market. There wasn't very much wasn't many farmers markets around at the time so we didn't want to make a soft cheese but um, because we knew that it was going to have to uh travel either yeah. down south or over back over to england so that was kind of what gave us the benchmark for what type of cheese and then i was fortunate to obviously work with uh, joe schneider at stitchelton for a bit and again of all the cheeses i made that the, those kind of the stilton style make is just a very pleasant cheese to make and especially if you're doing it as a solo operation it's something that's mm. very sort of like achievable you don't need there's not a lot of heavy lifting there's no kind of mechanical things that you need two people to operate so starting off on your own it was a good sort of place to, to go that's Plus such an was, interesting yeah. that's so interesting to hear that that actually that blue cheese lent itself to solo making and i know and joe schneider's been on the program he's he's a very inspiring man i mean so it must have been very you must have learned a lot you know he makes stitchelton which is blue cheese in in england so that must have been quite inspiring for you then yeah uh, yeah i've sort of you know stayed in touch and i'll be very friendly with him and again i guess as i said i ended up uh, wanting to make blue cheese after hanging out with joe because he is like an absolute legend and you know wealth of knowledge and you know very sort of open to sharing and stuff like that mm. and then I ended up in a cheese shop because I hung out with Andy Swinscoe at the Courtyard Dairy so again all these uh having all these sort of food heroes it makes you want to do it as well like yeah yeah they're very inspiring two very inspiring yeah inspiring <laughs> men really it's really true and so was it unusual from a northern 
Ireland point of view, were they are there blue cheeses in Northern Ireland or? Um, again, um, not really. I mean, whenever we started doing a few markets just selling the cheese, it was a really interesting point where um, I think blue cheese is the only thing that people will at a farmers market they'll see you. They'll walk across the farmer's market and you think, happy days, here comes a wee seal. And then they'll come up and they tell you that they don't, don't like blue cheese. I think it's probably a <laughs> product that someone will come out of their way to tell you that they don't like. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so the way that we sort of counteracted that was we sort of, um, we just, we try and like, you're back in the day, you were able to you know, obviously taste and taste out cheese yes. and, and sample it. And that, it was just a case of every market or when I opened the shop, it was just a case of getting it into people's mouths somehow. Mm-hmm. You know, being very confident, sort of saying, like, look, if you spit it out in front of me, I'll not be offended. Whenever we do farmers <laughs> markets, we would try to be beside someone who was doing cordials or a drink stand so that they could watch it, you know, you'd wash it away if you didn't like it. And again, you sort of find once people get over the fact that it's blue mold, then, uh, you know, it's a real delicious cheese. And, and that's what we sort of, we would all, we would also buy, we used to buy like white, bloomy, like just sort of brie style cheeses, uh, it's one called Cavan Bear. And we would sort of say, try and explain to people that the white on the outside of the brie is the same as the blue on the inside of like yes. these blue cheeses. That's the same effect. That's it's so the, interesting. The yes. I was yeah. thinking that because it's this idea of that mold, you know, uh, mold is bad. And of course, if you're in the cheese world, you become very used to understanding that they're, they're wonderful molds and, that, you know, that great flavour and texture. But that the visuals of, of bluing, you know, because you'd see you know, if I if my bread goes off, it get yeah, I get green mold on it, and that's not good. <laughs> so, so, so that's a really good analogy. So you're just trying to point out that actually, you know what, mold is there in cheese, and exactly. Yeah, and we had a big, yeah, we also had a big massive uh, hand painted sign um, saying "Keep it moldy," uh, and which people really <laughs> enjoyed. So I think yeah, once you sort of explained them not to fear it, then uh... well, you're very. I mean, that sort of humorous approach and being very upfront is a really, really good way to get people to let down their guard a bit and just give it a go. I suppose, isn't it? So, yeah, fascinating. And how? So Young Buck, where, where does the name come from? It's quite a striking name. What's that about? Yeah, again, um, so whenever we were starting, um, I'm very fortunate. Um, obviously, this is a podcast, but like visually, we have a lot of hand-painted signs. And it's uh, one of my best friends, a guy called Tony Murr, does all our kind of like marketing and, and stuff like that. So I was living with him at the time and, and we were just sort of like spitballing names. So we didn't, obviously, because we were like a new cheese, there was no immediate history of cheese making. We didn't want to call it after a townland or something oldly worldly. So we wanted something mm-hmm. relatively new. And then Young Buck, it's like a saying, like a sort of Irish saying, you know, mm-hmm. it's like a sort of an, an up and comer, like a young up and comer yeah. would be the. Yeah. So that's kind of where it came from. But again, so it was like one of those things. A cheeky newcomer in a way, isn't it? So you've been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's it. That's it. So that's yeah. kind of where it came from. And then. We but we had like tons of names close to it or on a on our fridge for about sort of six months and then that's what we sort of we sort of joked around that it was like you know naming your child you can't you can't give it its final name until you see it so after we made Did our first guess? batch and we we you know whenever we were making our first batches we still didn't have a name for it as such <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant I mean that's a really good point you've got to meet the cheese in a way haven't you and then think, yeah well, yeah exactly is this a young batch yeah. <laughs> yeah so I was really so when you all your all that the time you spent learning, you know, working, learning how to make cheese. And then did you have a sort of vision of what you wanted Young Buck to be? And or and was it fulfilled? I mean, did you, know, did you have a sense for cheese? I know it's blue, but did you have a sense of what you wanted within that blue cheese you were making? Yeah, again, it was that sort of like Stilton style, you know, those big sort of eight kilogram cheeses. Um, again, I think probably for the first couple of years, we, we struggled because we were trying to 
to force it and we were trying to make it into like you know, like it's like those kind of like really like great sort of stiltons or like a stiltleton and after it was after sort of like two three years we got the confidence to sort of um let it become its own thing and that's i think where it like i think around 2016 2017 that's when we started making a lot of very good cheese so yeah again we sort of because we would sell quite a lot through our shop in belfast um and we've got very good customers like Andy at the Courtyard Dairy, who are very understanding of the of the cheeses. You know, we um, it, it's a very variable cheese, and we're just sort of. Yeah. Um, but there's all those like underlying similar kind of flavor notes that we seem to hit. So again, you know, we're sort of just trying to we're low intervention cheese makers as such. You know, you're just lining up all the dominoes and and seeing how it falls, and mm. it'll change throughout the year and throughout the years as as the milk changes. And what, so when you said, it, you know, you were aiming for that sort of Stilton, Stitchleton, but then you realised actually it's a different cheese in it. So if someone hadn't tried Young Buck, what, what, how would you describe it to them? It is like, um, like a, like a, a creamy blue cheese. It's very kind of like soft paste, quite sort of like high salt. Um, but again, you'll get a lot of like fruity flavours in it, like pears, bananas, yet those real like sort of like, um, notes running through it that we find uh, like I always sort of assimilate it to like a, a penny banana chew that's the sort of oh, the yes. flavor that always yeah, sort yeah. of strikes me like you know whenever yeah. it's like kind of on the yeastier side um, then you would find it find a, like a sort of stilton and again we'll find it they'll probably be wider uh, than a lot of like blue cheeses so there'll be like quite sort of swathes on it where it'll be not blue but it'll have that blue flavor as such right that's interesting and and you were using raw milk i mean we talked about that initially and that's so is that from a, a conviction your own you know desire to sort of explore milk and see that you know because also it's, it's quite a stance to take in a way what yeah where does that come uh, from? Uh, yeah it was just like as a as a startup cheese maker a pasteurizer is a very expensive piece of kit, <laughs> you know. So um, if you're starting, yeah. if you're starting from scratch and you've got a, a good milk supply, you know, it's all the, one of those things where all the things are in the milk. It's just sort right. of creating the conditions that sort of helps all the good ones flourish. So again, it was definitely it was something that has been quite important to us solely for the fact that like. I just love the simplicity of, you know, we work with one farmer, he's about four miles away from us where we make the cheese, and then we sell the cheese another sort of six miles into Belfast. It's just, a, mm. it's such a simple thing. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, I think I, I, because I came at it in a new way, at, you know, from like starting cheese making anew, you sort of, we had had, we were lucky to do the college, so you knew all the kind of testing and all the HACCP and all that, that those kind of things, you had that all in place. So you didn't have to learn that. So it just sort of made sense that, you know, you'll be doing the same things for making a pasteurized cheese as you make a raw milk cheese. So, yeah, it just sort of made sense. Yeah. And Mike, you've also got a cheese shop. So you're a, a cheese maker and a cheese monger. And, and so, you know, eight years on from when you started, has there, are you finding a sort of receptive audience? You know, do you see that growing, the interest in cheese in Northern Ireland and you, in your customers? Are you getting a bigger customer base? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like again, like last year especially, you know, it was one of it sort of obviously saved us as a lot of the restaurants closed. And again, we would have, even though we had the shop, we still would have done an awful lot of wholesale. Would have been our our biggest customers mm-hmm. going out or you know going out to the restaurants. So like I think definitely in the last year, people really seeked out local and and what have you, and it was kind of growing that way. But I think last year really accelerated everything towards people being more conscious who they bought from and and what products they bought from those places. That's interesting. And do you see that, and obviously things sort of ebbing and flowing everywhere, but do you see that even as as things get more normal and we're out of lockdowns, are people still holding on to that desire to find local food and 
buy local cheese. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Like, and um, we, you know, our whenever things open back up again, sort of cap sort of ninety nine percent of our customer base are still coming in. A lot of them, you know, they might be buying less, but you're still having everyone in through the door, which is fantastic. Um, and again, we sort of saw a couple of other shops open up, and again, like that's we sort of love seeing other cheese shops open up because that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to get people in the habit of buying good stuff yeah you know be it from us or from one of our sort of you know competitors as such it's just getting people into that habit of buying local food in their daily life so yeah that it's, once they get out of that habit of getting it from the supermarket then it helps everyone i think that's so interesting i mean yes that's come up that actually if you convert people to to good cheese from industrial that's the conversion that everyone wins you know even if it's uh yeah because then you've got it people are going to be interested in in buying what, you, what you're making so yeah. so do you feel well, we always I mean, we always used to joke saying that you know as a the cheese shop all we were sort of trying to convince is you're trying to convince like one percent of people who buy all their cheese in the supermarket to buy one percent of that cheese from a local shop and it would create a vast amount of new delis you know it's tiny tiny percentages yeah. that we sort of need like you know that's a really interesting point yeah shifting that that habit isn't it? it's funny because i've always um written my first book ever was called food lovers london it was a guide to multicultural food shops in london and i've spent decades saying to people you know these shops are here these wonderful diverse interesting historic shops in london incredible range and if you just spend some of your money in them you know that i understand you go to the supermarket big shop but just go and buy your panettone from this lovely italian deli or buy some parmesan or buy some parma ham and you'll keep them going and that's you know spread the money <laughs> it's always been my yeah well my it's, 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 that's it, there's a you know we've got a, a couple of customers who you know, they come in each week and they just buy one big bit of cheese and then that's what they're you know they're not you know, we, we don't want people coming in and spending you know 30 40 quid every time you know it's that kind of mm -hmm. if you can get you know a lot of people coming in and just buying one lovely bit of cheese that they're going to take to their friend's house that night you know it's such a lovely thing to share and and especially coming out of this as people are starting to visit people again you know it's yeah. such a nice thing to bring and you know and you yes. talk over it and you can talk about it and yeah, I, I gave it one of my neighbors it was his birthday and i gave him a, a cheese uh tunworth that he hadn't tried and i just got this ecstatic text from him going that cheese is amazing where can i get it and it was just really <laughs> nice you know to spread the word so as we say that's the downside of being a cheesemonger and cheesemaker is that if you happen you just drop in on someone and you don't have cheese they're always very disappointed to see you. So you know, <laughs> yeah, I, like, disappoint, I disappoint you one more than I should because, yeah, you, you, the pressure is always on to bring some cheese. So people are like, yeah. <laughs> that's your stock. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, so I, was, but I was going to ask you, Mike, just looking back, you know, eight years and this, you know, you know, starting to make this new cheese in a very new way, you know, in, in Northern Ireland and open up, you know, the first cheese shop specialist cheese shop all these things you've done it's quite groundbreaking is it is that bringing in a and getting this great response is that very satisfying for you yeah yeah it's, it's lovely um again that's what we sort of say it's it's just a, a bizarre thing we've like you know, we always would kind of do cheese events and you know like we did virtual cheese and beer nights last year and we would like you know in a few sort of like tap rooms and breweries we would like go and do cheese plates at them um mm. so yeah no it's it's been it's lovely but again that's what we sort of say it's it's not it doesn't like feel like it's been a challenge or anything like that it's just sort of like it's things that i would enjoy doing if i wasn't the person organizing and doing them so yeah it's just uh, that's the best sort of work then isn't it brilliant yeah, yeah I mean, that's yeah. it and again like that's what you know that we were sort of the reason we always wanted to come back and do it here because we wanted you know it was a lot of time you know, that a lot of my friends were going to like london and australia and you're sort of mm. like trying to encourage people back and sort of say that 
Belfast is lovely. Brilliant. Well, listen, Mike, it's really lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having us. I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they go beautifully with cheese. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches, using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter, slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop, enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Before we go on exploring the world of cheese, here's news of another Food FM programme that I think you'd really enjoy. Thank you, Jenny. Well, I'm David, the host of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Each week, we explore the wonderful world of wine, spirits and beer, all things that make wonderful pairings with cheese, of course. We hear from those for whom making drinks is a passion. So after your cheese course, how about you join me for a few drinks? You can find The Drinking Hour with David Kermode on your usual podcast platform and at foodfmradio.com. Now it's back to Jenny and a slice of cheese. Well, this morning, very happy to have with me today Alison Elliott of the Ham and Cheese Company. Good morning, Alison. Good morning, Jenny. Now this week, Alison, we're looking at blue cheeses and I wanted to look at you know, one of the most famous blue cheeses in the world, Italian gorgonzola. And given that you import predominantly Italian charcuterie and cheeses, I thought you'd be a wonderful person to have on the show and tell, to tell us about gorgonzola. I mean, it's such a famous cheese. It's got a long history of being made in Italy. It does have a very long history. Yeah, it is. Um, it's now the third most widely produced cheese in Italy after Parmesan and Grana. So it has a, a long history that goes back to medieval times when it started life as a stracchino. And some people will know the uh, what a stracchino is. Nowadays, we think of that as a very young, fresh Italian cheese. But traditionally, a stracchino is the name that is given to all cheeses that were made from cow's milk who are on their way back from the transhumans. So the September journey back from the high mountain pastures in the in the high Alps. And so that, that seasonal movement of livestock um, between the summer and winter pastures, it took many days. The cows were traveling a lot. They were very tired. Mm. And um, so they, they, gave, they still gave, um, gave milk, not a lot of milk, but a small amount of milk, but that was of a very high quality. So shepherds wanted to use that milk, but it, they needed to make a very simple cheese that could be easily made along the way without having to heat the milk. And those cheeses were known as stracchino from the, um, the local dialect, which is stracche, which means tired. Um, huh. From the Amazing. because the cows were were, yeah. um, were were tired, we're tired. and yeah. so then you so in that those the kind of so on that journey from the high Alps down to the plain, they the cheeses would um, they would walk down past Lake Como, past um, Pasturo, and into the Val Sassino, which is a part of the um, the lower Alps, which has amazing caves, very natural caves. And the cheese would, cheeses would just be left in these caves while the cows would, would be grazing for a few days. And it was there that they would take on the natural mold in, the, in, the, in these caves. 
and the cheeses would would naturally turn blue often because you would because they had so little milk you the cheeses might be made from the two milking so they would use some curds from the evening and then just throw the curds from the morning on top so that middle layer you'd have an amazing layer of natural blue across the middle oh. um and so so that that I mean that's going back hundreds of years, but then by the by the 17th century, when canals are being built around Milan, they were being built primarily for irrigation, but also then to transport goods as well. And so these cheeses were were traveling around, and um, yeah, and it was Gorgonzola, the town of Gorgonzola, which is to the northeast of Milan, that were. Um, that was such an important trading post. And so these these simple small cheeses took the name of Stracchino di Gorgonzola. And that's how, when we first start to see the, the name of Gorgonzola put onto these cheeses. And then, I mean, they're moving forward a, a couple, um, well, until the 19th century, when it, it, it was becoming really, uh, really popular. You have Italian unification. And so in 1860, the first commercial dairy was opened and they were exporting everywhere. They're exporting to London, to Buenos Aires and to New York by the turn of the century. And, and the funny thing is that at this time, there is no geographical limit to where gorgonzola can be made. So it's made around Naples, it's made in Abruzzo. And, um, and you, have an, you have a massive production by the 1930s. There, there, there's 27,000 tons of gorgonzola being made, which is already half of what is made today. So actually that's a, that's a, huge, um, a huge quantity of cheese that would all have been very blue. It would have been the style, nowadays we know gorgonzola picante, a blue, a firmer blue that's much more similar in style to Stilton, and then gorgonzola dolce, so the creamy, milder blue. That only came about after the, um, after the Second World War when there was a demand for a, um, that style of sweeter, um, ah, creamier cheese. That's interesting. Um, Is it legally defined, that the production of gorgonzola? It, it is, yeah. I mean, oh, so you have after the, um, there's no, it, it would have had such a lot of different flavours because there was no, they weren't using any particular strain of the penicillium Rocky 40 that we think of as being added to all of the famous blues nowadays to to turn them blue. That mm -hmm. that only happens in the from the 1930s onwards. So up until then, there's this amazing range of different flavors and styles. But then from the from the 30s onwards, you have those specific strains of penicillium being used. And so you have a more consistent cheese. And then, um, yeah, and so that the kind of the, the DOP is um is set These up in the rules that protect it um, uh, although i mean actually the, those the geographical yeah. area was uh, was set to be it's only allowed to be made in lombardy and piedmont that was set in the 1970s and so your cheeses are, are wonderful i've tried lots and <laughs> the, what do you look for in a gorgonzola because i'm guessing if it's made on such a big scale are there sort of is there a massive range you know in terms of, of styles and and you know production i don't know of quality what do, what do you look yeah. for when you look for a gorgonzola yeah, it's interesting because nowadays, so there are 37 producers within that DOP. All of them, you know, they, the milk has to be pasteurized. So we are, it's an interesting one with Gorgonzola. There's nobody making it on a small scale. And so we, when I, when we decided, okay, we want to find the very best Gorgonzola.
Coca-Cola um, to bring over. Uh, uh, we we went and visited perhaps fifteen of the of those dairies, the um, the kind of the smaller ones, the 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 um, the better ones, and then and just tasted and talked. Spent a lot of time tasting and talking to people. But but you know I was aware it was very it was different from the other things that we have in our range because it was not it's not made on an artisan scale, right. and the whole time throughout that search. I was thinking, well, hang on a minute, what, what is, you know, is there nobody, there's kind of, there was an, an idea of this mythical cheese, like Gorgonzola Antico, or mm. um, also Gorgonzola di Montagna, so the idea of a mountain Gorgonzola that people would talk about, but it didn't appear to exist, <laughs> and I couldn't. So we 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 worked with a lovely, lovely dairy, uh, the, the Barufaldi family, whose cheese is consistently excellent. It's, it's so, it's so creamy it's it has that sweetness people want i mean 90 percent of production now is of gorgonzola dolce only 10 percent ah. is the is the picante gosh, cheese now that's so interesting and, right i didn't realize it was that that much gosh yeah so did you so this yeah. quest for a blue mountain cheese in italy did you <laughs> then find did you find another another cheese that was you know this there was this sort of mythical gorgonzola-esque cheese then <laughs> It's, yeah, we well, we found it was strange when we were then we we it takes us a long time to find anything. So it was um it was a couple of years later when we finally got round to think. Okay, now we want to make to find a taleggio, just the other classic um taleggio. A taleggio is also a stracchino traditionally, so it is also one of those cheeses made from the cows on their on their journey down from the high alps to cows, the plains. Yes. Those tired cows, and oh. um, and there are still a couple of um, artisan producers of taleggio uh, using, even though it's become very much industrial. But there are a couple of producers still using the Brunalpina cow, so that the traditional Alpine cow unpasteurized milk. And the, the dairy that we um, ended up working with, um, a lovely uh, dairy in the in the Val Taleggio, so it is an Alpine valley mm. in the Orobike Alps. They, when we went to visit them for their Taleggio, it turned out that they were also had a small production of this cheese called Strachitunt, and they were very excited <laughs> about this cheese. That's a spectacular <laughs> name, isn't it? Yes, brilliant. <laughs> so Strache, again, tired, but Tunt means in local dialect means round. So you've got oh, a round, nice. tired cheese. A round, tired cheese, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and tell us about Stracchitunt um, then. What was this? Yeah. So that is a, so it it is basically, it, it is what Gorgonzola would have been for hundreds of years. They make it from, um, so it's an unpasteurized cheese. They take the milking, the evening's milk, and um, uh, they take the curds and they leave them overnight in the dairy. Uh, that's not, so it's, there's no air conditioning, so they're not refrigerated. And so, unless unless it gets really, it never, it rarely gets really hot because they're at over a thousand meters. But then the morning's milking is worked again, and um, and those two uh, curds are placed one on top of the other, and you have you, when they are aged. Again, they are as with gorgonzola. These molds they need air um, for the 
penicillin to be activated. So they are pierced, very much mm -hmm. like you know when you see a Stilton or a Gorgonzola, they'll often have straight lines of blue, yeah. and that's as the needles go in to activate the penicillin. And that's exactly the same. Strachytunt is pierced by hand, and so the blue, um, the natural blue, can be activated. However, you know it is because it's so natural. Sometimes we've had some cheeses that don't have; they have hardly any blue in at all. You know, it's oh. not a. It, yes. it's, they, it can be just uh, depends you know, yeah just depends it just it, it's oh, we're trying to work out if it's more seasonal but i don't think it is i think it really is just the luck of the draw but it's a very it's a really special um mountain cheese and very very hard to find still but what but very and what sort of texture does it have how how old roughly would it be sold at oh they age it for 90 days so uh -huh. yeah, about three, yeah, months three months old. Yeah. The wheels yeah, are exactly. five kilos. So um, yeah, it's uh, it is it's similar in um, texture to a Stilton, not not as oh, not creamy yes. like a like a Gorgonzola. Gorgonzola is because um, we think we know a lot of people will ask us for dolce latte. Dolce latte means ah. just sweet milk, and yeah. they think that that is um, dolce latte. All that is is it's the Galbani name, so the massive industrial Gorgonzola mm. producer. Galbani, it is the name, their trademarked name for Gorgonzola Dolce. So if you uh, are, um, right. that's all you're getting when you are buying Dolce but Latte. Dolce you're Latte. Getting yes. Yeah. Gosh, and how do you enjoy sort of the, stra the Strachytunt and the Gorgonzola? Are there, are there ways that you enjoy eating, Alison? I mean, is it just like a sort of after dinner cheese or would you have it you know with a glass of prosecco i mean are, are there some pairings that's what i was wondering that come to mind they, i mean very much wherever you go in italy you will any small alimentari will sell a gorgonzola probably a galbani gorgonzola outside of uh, the area where they make it but it's very much it will be used if you go to if you buy gorgonzola in sicily they're only really going to use it for cooking they're going to put it into a pasta sauce on top of a mm. pizza uh, and then but actually within the um, that area of Piedmont and Lombardy where they make it then yes it's the most fabulous after dinner cheese and it's um they uh, up in the um it, around in the Valtaleggio that valley is very famous for cherries so they will often serve it with a we've had it with a oh. lovely cherry like a wild cherry jam that's a very yeah. traditional um way of serving it after dinner or with honey as well there's lots of lovely Actually, that's yes i mean honey and blue though that is a lovely combination because you know it is the sweetness of the honey against the that sort of tanginess yeah. of a blue cheese so yeah, yeah beautiful yeah. oh well listen that was and i know and alison you're speaking to us from italy aren't you which is you know, it's a perfect place to be talking to us about <laughs> about Italian cheese so yeah so yeah. thank you for for joining us all the way that was really a lovely conversation thank you Alison Great. take care thank you Jenny thanks bye-bye online on smart speakers and on listen again this is food fm savor the crunch of Peter's yard sourdough crackers available at Waitrose Sainsbury's Ocado Amazon petersyard.com and specialist food retailers this week on A Slice of Cheese, we're looking at the wonderful world of blue cheese. And I'm very happy to have with me today a relatively new blue cheese in Britain, Martin Tacales, who together with his wife Hazel has set up Pevensey Cheese. Good morning, Martin. Morning, Jenny. 
Now, Martin, I've known you before this because I knew you as a cheesemonger at the Neil's Yard Dairy Shops, first in Covent Garden, then at Borough Market, where you were the manager. So I always, I can literally see you standing behind the counter in my mind's eye. So you've made quite a journey. You've gone from cheesemonger to cheesemaker. Yeah, it, it was quite a journey and um, a, a bigger and stranger leap than I realised. That's interesting. And what, what was the, what prompted you? What was the desire behind that, you know, a big shift? There are two two reasons. First of all, Hazel and I thought that we wanted to start a family and be outside London for a while. And we thought, well, what could we do? And we based ourselves on Hazel's parents' farm in East Sussex. And they they allowed us to use part of their barn to construct our cheese rooms in. So we thought we wanted to go do something different and run a family business and manage our own time. And this, uh, the second reason is that we really wanted to make something with our own hands and try to make a product and see what that field like felt like. I can see that working in the dairy would have been quite inspiring that front because you're surrounded by cheeses that are made by hand. And and so you'd had a lot of contact with the cheesemakers, which I'm guessing was very inspiring. It's, it's really inspiring and very illuminating. Nothing, of course, pre- really prepares you for taking the plunge yourself. But, you know, through... All the years, 15 years of working at Neil's Yard, you, all these amazing people, producers, come through the door and you sell this, all this incredible cheese. And we just thought, well, that's the background that we that I have and that we could we could use to try go make our own products. And why a blue cheese? Because lots of people when they start up make you know quite small fresh cheeses or you know what you know bloomy rind cheeses. What what drew you towards the blue cheese spectrum? I think well, first of all, Hazel and I love blue cheese. We love all types of blue cheese. And we particularly like Italian-style blue cheeses. So that was one thing bubbling in the back of our heads. And then the other reason is that all the customers I served at Neil's Yard, not everybody loves blue cheese, and that's fine, but all the people mm-hmm. I felt got emotional about cheese and were really the sort of the most emotionally keyed-in customers love blue cheese. And I always thought, well, I'm going to make a product, make a cheese that people really enjoy. You want to target those people who try some blue cheese and they're really gobsmacked by it. And I thought, well, that's my customer. Huh. That's who I am. Lovely. Yeah, that's very inspiring. Yes. I mean, at least I've, I've tried your Pepinsy Blue and it is delicious. So congratulations. But I'm Thank jumping you. ahead of the story, really. <laughs> so, but, so good. So and imagine, and obviously, you know, you and I know, Martin, how much, how hard, you know, how much hard work goes into making cheese, but also how much skill goes into making cheese. So you must have got, how did you, how did you learn, you know? Various means, so we we could have um, spent a lot longer in development, even even longer than the two to three years that we spent in development. And we could have spent more time going abroad, learning from continental blue cheese makers. We only really got it together, got our plan together just as the pandemic started and travel was, was locked off to us. And also lots of Italian producers weren't very forthcoming with, with visitors from from the UK mm. for some reason to, to learn from them. On the on the other side of the coin, all the British cheese producers, even territorial and and blue cheese local producers, anybody who might see us as a as competition, welcomed us with open arms and we met so many people who were willing to show us how they made cheese. Yes, and that's a real that's what I've always loved. I think that's one of the reasons I, I love the sort of British cheese world so much is that there is that spirit. I mean I don't want to romanticize it, but there is definitely a camaraderie <laughs> to the We're we're nearing to the level where we can't make a great deal more then we're approaching not capacity, but we're you know we're now getting established. Then I'm thinking, well, mm-hmm. why not? Why not other people own it? Why not other people make a soft blue cheese? There's plenty of room in the market. For, it seems so. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just all get along together because it's really hard. Yeah, I, 
not arrogantly, you've got to be a bit foolish to begin with. with this, to, you've got to be naive to start <laughs> yes. anything, really. And then Todd, well, Todd Jathowan yeah. said to me, for God's sake, don't make a blue cheese. It's the hardest thing ever. You'll, you'll, you'll drive you up the wall and you go mad. And then I went to work with him. So part of answering your questions, I spent a year at Jathowan's making a kefili right. and, and mixed with Jathowan's um, Gorwith kefili and their pitchfork yes. cheddar. And that mm-hmm. taught me that on the one hand, food producers should be put on a pedestal. People who make, who people really skillful and who are sort of the cheese immortals, sort of the hallowed legends of the cheese world, they are great people and great teachers and they're rare. But then when you make it every day, three days a week, you learn that it's just people. And that, that really taught me that it's management and it's people and, and anybody mm. can learn how to do this. You just need a few things in play. But really, anybody can do this. You just got to get up really early and work really hard. But really, anybody can have <laughs> a go. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's it. And um, a lot of it, we developed our recipe, uh, actually a lot of it from, from books, uh, from different cheese-making books, and then really probably about 50 individual iterations of trial and error till we were given the go-ahead. That's interesting. And you talked about being inspired by that sort of Ita- the continental blue cheese style. So tell us about... Pevensey Blue then. Tell us what, you know, what, what is it like? Describe it because people may not have tried it yet. First of all, when you make, start making uh, any kind of handmade cheese, it's not always the same. So, so right now, <laughs> we're, near, we're nearer to, to begin with. It, it was turning out a little bit more like a, a bit like a, sometimes it was like a soft gorgonzola, other times more like a drier Stilton style. But now we're getting much more, I actually think we, we use a shorthand to describe it like a gorgonzola. You know, if I'm going to be pushed on it, it's almost a bit more like a, a, a cow rock for at the moment. It's a bit drier, it's a bit more salty, a bit more savoury. And actually, mm-hmm. the honest way to say it's it's a bit like a continental soft blue cheese because I think it's not really, at today, like a gorgonzola, I suppose. Okay. So basically, I'll describe it. It's, it's, yeah. um, it's, I suppose, you cut into it and it's like a gel-like texture. It's got pockets of blue in it and some seams of blue from the piercing and it's a yellow background paste. And when it's nine to ten weeks old, it's a, it's a kind of mottled blue with little chasms of blue in there. And then you, it, sort of, it should be pliable and bendy and then creamy when you spread it on something like a piece of bread or a cracker. And then that's the texture we're going for. It's almost like a, a bit like a kind of camembert texture, really, sort of bendy gel. Oh. And then when you press it and, yeah. onto your piece of bread and you eat it, the first flavour we think should be kind of sweet and a bit hazelnutty. And partly that's the milk and partly that is the starter culture as well, which is an Alpine, Italian Alpine culture. And then right. the, the, there's a kind of green tomato flavour through the blue and then it finishes on quite a savoury note. And that's quite a lengthy that's and complex description. That's beautifully described. No, I love that. That's I've eaten so much of it. I've eaten so much of it. You have to. <laughs> so. That's a big journey. And have you and Hazel, what are the satisfactions that you and Hazel have? Was there sort of wonderful, you know, was there a moment when you went out with your cheese to sell it, I don't know, face to face to the public, perhaps at a market or something? And then got I'll tell you what, really I'll, nice I'll tell you the journey. Buzz. So uh, in, a, in hopefully in shorthand, first of all, the dissatisfaction came from mm. taking our second, our second batch up to London to Bromley Percival at Neil's Yard. And we had it in a Tupperware box. This is about three years ago. And we slid mm-hmm. the Tupperware box over the Bromin and she looked at it and without opening, she looked at it and said, pushed it back and said, "If come back when you do the opposite of this. <laughs> so that was a kind of, the low point was like, oh, you know, this is so bad. Someone can see it from the outside and push it and says, yeah. do everything different. 
now, uh, which I find quite, I, I find that quite funny. And now the satisfying thing is selling it at a farmer's market and customers who we've bought now from every month to buy from us for farmer's market, I'll taste it with them and they'll say, that's really good. And then I'm really critical of our cheese and I'll have to say, I agree with them. That's a real high point is selling it to a customer and them saying, that's great. And I'll have that big block. That's the, you know, uh, a mini rosette each time as a customer saying yes. to us, that's really fantastic. And then, you know, that's all those, jer- those those moments you have when you're working on the quality with people from, from New York's in particular, and then sampling with them, and they're saying, that's really great. So uh, in January last year, we had a sampling session with Neil's Yard, and the, their team around the table said, right, just do this 10,000 times over, and you know we're in business, so don't do anything different. Just do this now. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, there we go. So that's a little glimpse into the repetition. Well, listen, Martin, that was yes. so, that's wonderful. I've, I've tried your cheese, but I couldn't get a hold of any recently, so I must go and track it down again. And... Um, and congratulations. I think it's a wonderful, you know, well done. What, what a journey. So lovely to have you on the show. Thank you, Martin. Great. Thank you. My pleasure. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Very happy to have with me, talking to me from the Isle of Wight, Rich Hodgson of Isle of Wight Cheese. Good morning, Rich. Good morning, Jenny. It's been a long time since we spoke because it was when when I was writing Great British Cheeses that we last talked, I think, and you had just sort of got going quite recently. When did you set up your company, Rich? Yeah, we, we started in 2006. There was nobody making cheese on the island at the time. Yeah, we thought we'd give it a go. We had no cheese making experience, my mother and I. So we took ourselves off to Reeseith Agricultural College and um, did two short courses there. Came back, approached a farmer about the possibility of making cheese and then took it from there. So that's sort of slightly mad decision to make cheese, which is mm. very impressive. And then why why a blue cheese? That was the first cheese you made was Isle of White Blue, wasn't it? What what drew you to a blue cheese making? That's right, yeah. The blue was the first one. Um, I, it's just, I'm not too sure. I, I I mean, I'm not a massive, massive cheese eater. Uh, I have to you know, admit that first up. <laughs> um, I do love making cheese, though, and it's the mm. process and the um, the people who you meet and the selling of it and everything that, that really appeals to me and always has done. So... But with cheese, for me, I'm always I've always been a fan of more like the subtle types of cheeses. So I'm not a massive fan of extreme flavors, just personal taste, mm-hmm. you know. So for me, it was wanting to create something that selfishly appealed to me <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So with the olive white blue, it was it was an idea that it was like let's try and create something that's perhaps not too punchy because I, uh, you know. <laughs> And when you, I guess when I was trying to set the thing up in 2006, I was looking at it, you know, perhaps in a way back then where I wanted to make sure that the, the business was a success and I was wanting to appeal to as many people as possible customers. So I felt that if I was to perhaps produce something too strong or too uh, mild, then it might not be of interest to the majority of people. So I was trying to find the, kind of like the middle ground, but hope that it would have its own characteristics and it would develop its own personality. And um yeah, so that was it really. That was the reason. And if, if nothing else, then the name in itself, Isle of White Blue, just sounded so perfect. So it was <laughs> uh, another reason to choose that, that type of cheese. And it's very small, isn't it? We should, we should describe it. It's much, I think, you know, it's very different from, let's say, a, a Stilton, isn't it? It's to, why don't you tell us the sort of dimensions and weight? And Yes, it's, it's 
you're right, it's a lot smaller. So the diameter is 90 millimeters and its depth is a whether handmade and hand filled in individual molds, you, you know, they do yeah. vary from time to time, but typically you're looking at around 40 millimeter depth and the weights anywhere between yeah, anywhere, anywhere between 180 and 210 grams particular yeah. on average, So it's a real little table cheese, and it was that done, that choice, was that in order to make it portable then, which does make it very portable, doesn't it, so people can buy it and take it home it's as a, really, a souvenir of a holiday, yeah? Absolutely, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It was, it was with the, the way that the dynamic is on the Isle of Wight here, um, as, as is with many sort of areas in the country where there's, you know, quite a lot of tourism and visitors, um, I felt at the time, you know, if we could create something that was um, small enough to be wrapped and be its own entity, then there would be less emphasis on the uh, delicatessen or whatever to try and cut it and package it mm. attractively. So if someone could, you know, if a customer could take that off the shelf, then it would be, you know, we, we might potentially sell more units of it. And, you know, back in the day, I guess, when people came to the island, they would have taken a stick of rock away with them. and. Um, you know, dietary habits have changed slightly. Sugar's not so big these days, is it? And um, things like cheese and uh, handmade produce on the island that yes. um, perhaps have more nutritional interest have, have, have kind of taken off. And especially with the, you know, I often find as well with the with with the Isle of Wight, you know, the, the the local produce that we have here, not just with the cheese but other things. Obviously, you know, you you you, you put the name Isle of Wight onto the product, and um, that helps with it. Uh, too because the, because of the connotations that everyone has with the island everyone just remembers the Isle of Wight if ever they've been here it was always sunny they came it was. here on a school trip I've they loved been. it I did come on a school trip and filled up yeah got sand from Allen Bay and <laughs> went saw the true, dinosaurs yeah. and saw the donkeys yeah. and yeah I feel real fondness for it so yeah that's really char- I mean well done for you know being so enterprising and so you make do you make now you, you make another cheese as well as the, you've got a soft as, as well as the blue have you you've always made yeah, the cheese so in parallel that's right yeah the, the, this um there's two soft cheeses so there's the olive white blue and then there's the olive white soft which is um just like the you know the white rinded version of the same cheese but without the piercings obviously um so it's very similar cultures obviously different molds um the, you know the white mold as opposed to the the blue mold yes. but uh, yeah. it, it it was you know in, in the beginning it was um it was a cheese that I didn't perhaps put as much attention uh, towards because I was more concentrating on the on the Isle of Wight blue. Yeah. So how how old? Just one last question: the blue, your blue, the Isle of Wight blue. How long is it matured for then? Because it's so little. I'm guessing it's quite a quick process of the maturing and ripening then. Exactly. Yeah. Now the um, from when from the day it's made to its best before date, it's um, fifty six days. Um, eight weeks so um yeah it, it obviously high moisture so it's going to uh, ripen quite quickly uh, we wrap them when they're two weeks old and we sell them uh, well when they're two weeks old they're into the fridge at four degrees so theoretically they could be in anyone's fridge at that stage and the danger at this time of the year especially on the island with us is that we can't age them ourselves we, we just don't have the the stock, you know, as soon as they're wrapped, yeah. there's a demand for them on the shelves, right. so they go out okay. really young. Yeah. And frustratingly for me, the, you know, the, when when we're looking around the shops here on the island, and I think it's the same, obviously, with the distributors who we use off the island as well, the shelves get cleared before there's a chance um, for the cheese to get aged. So customers are taking the cheeses away a little bit, perhaps too young. So for that reason, we put on the back a little ripening guide, which hopefully... Uh, yeah. gives a, some indication as to you know the obvious to, to us which is that when they're two three weeks old they're going to be young and fresh and bitter and as those proteins sort of break down a little bit more over time 
they'll become um, less bitter and they'll become more of a better flavour. So it's designed hopefully to try and give the, the customer a little bit more knowledge and um, get them and, to wait a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, which is never, that sort of, yeah, yeah that fact reason. of ripening is so important with cheeses. So, it is, yeah. And, and the, yeah, and, and that's the trouble I think with a lot of people are conditioned to think that everything's ready when they take it off the shelf in the supermarket or yes. and so when they step into a farm shop um you know if it, it, we're as small producers you know often we're not you know we're not i wouldn't say organized that's not the word but we're not um able to just sort You're of set up get yeah. everything out at exactly sure. the right age because because inevitably you get wastage with that and um yes. you know you cannot afford wastage so for us you know we can only sell the cheeses once and um, in fact, you know, logically, the, the distributors and the shops prefer it actually with the longer shelf life, of course, because that yeah, gives them more course, time to more shift time it. To sell it. it yeah, yeah. So it really does, yeah, it really puts the emphasis onto the, the responsibility onto the customer to just, um, you know, take the cheese to the age that they want it. And you can never turn the cheese back in time, of course. If you create a cheese which is really strong, uh, you'll find someone will pick you up and say, that cheese is too strong, I don't like it. And <laughs> unfortunately, you can't send it back in time and say, well, two, three weeks ago, it would have probably been perfect for you. Of course, you can do it the other way. You can sell them a young cheese, yes. and if they complain that it's not strong enough, you say, that's fine, just hold on to it for two or three weeks, and it'll yeah. it'll uh, it'll get, get stronger. Brilliant. Well, listen, Richard, it's so lovely to catch up with you. That's um, well done for still being there and, yeah, and making your cheeses and winning awards that's a great a great story thank you for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure and lovely to talk to you again online on smart speakers and on listen again this is food fm savor the crunch of peter's yard sourdough crackers available at waitrose sainsbury's ocado amazon petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. So this week on A Slice of Cheese, we're looking at blue cheese. And I'm very happy to have with me today Ned Palmer, the author of A Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles. Ned, good morning. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for having me. Well, I thought Stilton, it's got such a complex history. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who's going to be a really good person to talk to about Stilton's history? <laughs> and you did leap to mind, Ned. So, it's very yeah. kind of you. <laughs> well, take me through, because I think, you know, the, it is really interesting. It, you know, Stilton is named after a place but not the place where it was made is one of those, well, you know. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah, and even that is contentious. Quite. Okay, yeah, take me through it. It's quite a, yes, it's a vexed history, isn't it? It's a complex it history. It is a bit. Yeah, yeah. I, and I'm beginning to suspect it might be the same with any named cheese, but I think I feel like we know a bit more about just the vexatiousness of Stilton history. So there is, so Trevor Hickman, who wrote a book called Stilton, he says Stilton was made in Stilton. Oh, okay. And he right. has one bit of evidence he has. It's a chap who was interviewed in 1777 for something like the Gentleman's Magazine. And this chap called Coxton Bray says, I remember when I was a little lad, the people used to collect cream to make Stilton cheese. Um, oh. And the thing is, it's an old fella down the pub. So it could be true, but it's not, it's not, you know, it's not a yes. sort of cast iron source. And then you've got Patrick Rance, who's the governor of writing about British cheese history. And he says, these facts are beyond dispute that Stilton was never made in Stilton. It was made in Quimby Hall by <laughs> somebody called Mrs. Paulette and then, and so on. And there's this whole story that follows from there about how the famous Cooper Hornhill Thornhill, who owned the Bell Inn in Stilton, he married Mrs. Paulette's daughter, and then he got he got a line to read in Stilton, and there's all that that sort of bit of story. But I, personally, I didn't find enough weight in either one of those to be that certain. And 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 
I, I mean, furthermore, there's a bit, you know, Defoe says it's our English parmesan, which is yes. confusing because yes. does he mean it's really hard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, you don't think of a blue cheese bean a parmesan at all, so, yeah. You don't, and you don't yeah. think of the Stilton we know now as being as being hard. It's soft, so you think, well, they, did they mean the same thing? Like, I began, you know, I'm a recovering philosopher, Jenny, so I don't have any simple, <laughs> uh, straightforward, sensible thoughts. And I was like, what do we even, how do we know that the thing that they are calling Stilton then is the thing that we would recognise as Stilton I think that's quite a valid point. I mean, well, perhaps we should outline what is the... There is certain legend... When you, it's funny, when you research food and write about it, you come across these stories and, and the internet is very good at repeating them. So the, so the myth yeah. of Stilton is, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the reason I said to you, Stilton, you know, Stilton nowadays is, is not made in the place that we, you know, not, that we associate no. it with. Now, no. that's very plausible to me. And so this is all connected, you know, if you, I love all this tackle, you can say that the history of Stilton has a lot to do with the history of road building in Britain or to do with the mm. Act of Union where we became a customs union with Scotland because we got more sort of a better trade within the, the borders of the, what, what was to become the UK, I suppose. But so people are travelling up and down this new road, the Great North Road that, that they built or re, rebuilt in the 18th century and they stop off and are coaching him in the town of Stilton. And so here, this is the story that I knew to be true when I was a younger monger, you know, when I was growing up in the mongering <laughs> world. Yeah. And it was just gospel and I told it to everyone. So the Bell Inn was run by Cooper Thornhill. Cooper Thornhill got cheese from Mrs Paulette. He didn't want to tell anyone where he got it from because he got such good cheese, so he sent it from Stilton. Uh, people would have it at the Bell Inn in Stilton and come back to London saying, I had this amazing cheese in Stilton. And so, you know, people started calling it Stilton. Yeah, which is, so it sounds really plausible, actually, doesn't it? It does sound plausible. And yeah. I do think, because the more I think about, if you think about Kerfilly and Cheddar, which are both named after towns or cities, or villages in the case of Cheddar, you don't make cheese in towns and villages, you make it on farms. Mm. So I think those cheeses got their name because they were marketed in markets, they were sold in markets in those towns, and the cheeses are brought in from the surrounding place. Yeah. So it kind of makes sense to me that you call a cheese Stilton. It doesn't have to have been made there. And then, well, of course, yes, they moved yeah. the boundaries of the counties. And so Stilton isn't in one of the Stilton-making counties now. So you can't well, make Stilton in Stilton now. That's, I mean, that's what we should explain. So basically, yes, sorry, Stilton, yeah. I mean, what's really interesting about Stilton, it's very unusual of British cheese, and that it is legally protected and defined. Mm, and that is, yeah. you know, the French have done that much more than the British. Yeah. And the Stilton makers seem to have clubbed together much earlier than many other cheese makers. Yeah. I uh, which so, is also yeah. very, which is very interesting. I mean, Stilton, you know, is such a legendary British cheese, isn't it? So when you're researching something like this, Ned, that must have been... You know, you're just trying to un unpick then. It's hard. I, yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> it was very yes. interesting. The first draft of my chapter about Stilton was basically an entire chapter about me doing the research and flipping what I believed every time I read another bit of, of, of original <laughs> source material and going, so it turns out it's not that. And it was yes. partly I was being cross, but partly I was kind yeah. of fascinated in the way that 
it's there was just so much sort of nebulousness and one of the big things for me was this guy Cooper Thornhill who I've just always seen as this hero of Stilton mm -hmm. may not have had an association much of an association with it in his lifetime because I couldn't really find anything from while he was alive that connected him to Stilton and I reckon it's marketing oh, this is my theory yes is okay. that people yes. thought so yes. Stilton it's called Stilton it comes from that area here's Cooper yeah. Thornhill he's got this famous scene he did this wide sort of let if we connect the stories you get the halo effect of, 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 right. of such a brand storytelling what I was going to ask you was, mm. so, and I can see how hard it is to be certain of what Stilton was like, but I do. is there a point where we know that Stilton does become a blue cheese? You know, when in the history does it become a blue-veined cheese blue that people are enjoying? Cheese. I mean, <laughs> it, so for firstly, I've, I've got to fess up that I think my criteria for knowing something and being certain are absurdly high. Because That's because you're a philosopher. With, we're yes. a problem with philosophy, yeah. So, so you know. <laughs> okay, for an ordinary mortal, for someone for like me who's not a philosopher, yes. I mean, well, even in there's this lovely bit in a magazine from the 18th century, I think. Yeah, 1732. That talks about spreading Stilton like butter. Ah, that's so nice. that means yeah. it's a nice soft cheese. Yeah. Uh, the blue veining. I mean, I've got a photo in an old cheese making book from about 1901, and you can see the beautiful veins in it. And but also, I saw quite an old recipe where they talk about piercing the cheese while it's in the hoops so that's still mm -hmm. while it's in molds which mm -hmm. is a lot earlier than god people do it now and they'd say piercing to let the whey run out oh, but okay. that would leave holes in which would let the blue get in i think yes. it's probably really early i mean the other thing i know this is just going to be a pain to make it worse i think most of our cheese is pretty blue um, you know, no, 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 don't take me down there. I know, I'm <laughs> what sorry. What are you doing to me? <laughs> I'm ruining it all, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What you were saying, so most cheese would have been blue just because of, of the nature of cheese making and, and fact, you know, so. mould in the environment. I reckon there was some pretty funky cheese back in the day. That is interesting. So, okay, now I'm going to be firm and take you forward to the <laughs> sorry, 20th, okay. <laughs> to yeah. the, to the 20th century. Yes. Yeah, brilliant. No, so the 20th century, I had a sense that the Stilton makers had did sort of gather together quite early on in the 20th century. There was a movement in the, the 20s and 30s amongst quite a few quite a few cheeses people started to band together and to make sort of associations to try right. and stipulate what was you know what defined it and also what made a good one and then to have certain stamps and trademarks so you could yes. join one of these federations right um and i think i think the 30s is a good time for that with stilton it might have been before then and i think i think it was part a lot of this was in 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 reaction to the imports because the americans started importing cheese in the 1850s cheddar mostly and that was right. started to hammer our indigenous production because it was cheaper you know and then they had this thing in the 1930s called imperial preference where the dominions like australia and new zealand got tariff-free imports mm. and they just flooded the market with with their cheese right so there would and have been I a think, move to try and protect them what you're doing in in response yeah exactly yeah. and if yeah. you say no look this is the official stilton with the stamp on it and and this is what it is yeah. i'd say the 20s and 30s are the real time for that sort of classification i mean you see it in the 19th century with cheddar uh, I think people are starting to just 
to lay down some specifications more mm. for what they thought it was. One of the things I wanted to talk about, I was, I mm. wondered if you had come across, we tend to think of Stilton as a, as a Christmas treat and we tend yeah. to associate it with port. These are two of the sort of, yeah. the, you know, the glowing, lovely images that we have yeah, of Stilton, aren't they? Did, did you get a sense of when that, that started to come out? Is that a sort of 19th century? Well, oh, it, I do. Yeah. So I have a theory because I think they I think they both became popular. Well, I'm absolutely certain that they both became popular on the 18th century. Right. Um, Dan oh. Defoe mentions Stilton in 1724 in, in the account of what's it called? A tour around the Isles of Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Port starts to arrive in Britain in the early 18th century. Um, and the reason that is that, you know, we were at war with the French, which is a sort of national pastime of the British <laughs> until, yes. you know, uh, yes. 1815, quite but quite yeah. a long time. And and so we were buying wine off Portugal. It wasn't doing too well in its trip across the Bay of Biscay, so they used to stick brandy in it to fortify the wine and try and yeah, know, make, make it hold out better. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they sort of inadvertently invented port. And, and so I've got this other theory, which is the main reason for having them together is because they became kind of trendy around the same time. And I'm going to say that's sort of the early middle of the 18th century, when the first barrels of port matured enough to actually taste good. Right. And when pe- enough people had read Daniel Defoe's book and decided to do a bit of touring themselves and travelled up and down the Great North Road and brought some Stilton back to their friends in London. And Yes, well, and if Stilton was a blue cheese at this stage then actually you know port the sweetness of port does go really well with blues that is it is a good combination isn't it it is a good combination i mean i sort of i i i have to say that until a certain moment i wasn't all that sold on the combination and i've always preferred dessert wine for that very reason so sticky and so sweet and and stout or porter i love a tawny i think tawny port's a brilliant cheese yeah i think i think you're right and and i mean i think the other thing was that you know i was a poor cheesemonger so I was having I don't know Tesco's finest <laughs> port but my friend bought a couple of bottles around that his father gave to him which were 1960s ports wow and yeah. I know and we had them and I understood and the thing is that's the last time I'll ever be able to afford to drink anything like that but yes um, but so yes so for the very yes a good combination if you can get good port then. <laughs> yeah yeah oh and the tawny i totally yeah. agree with you yeah, yeah yeah it's a good match isn't it so well now listen that yeah. was a wonderful insight into how complex food history is <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't know next time we'll find something that really yes or no there's not a single question yes. in cheese that i have one of those answers to on the phone I bet you don't. Yeah, no, no, that's that's the joy. Actually, no, it was lovely to talk to you, Ned. Thank you for coming yeah, on the show. Thank that you was great. So much. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.